It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Sometimes when I'm uncomfortable, I laugh. Like I get like a little smirk on my face or I'll just actually start laughing. And that in itself is uncomfortable because if I'm around somebody and they see that expression on my face, like maybe they don't take it seriously. And I actually think I got this from my mom because she does the same thing. And on that note, it is really interesting when you do things that your parents do and you wonder, is it nature versus nurture? Do you do anything physical when you get uncomfortable, Jason? I don't know about uncomfortable. The thing that I think I adopted (laughs) is maybe when I'm annoyed or exasperated with something. There's a, you know what I'm talking about. How would you characterize that body language? There's a thing that I do that you always laugh about. you like, oh, that's the thing you do. The facial expression? Yeah. It's kind of like you purse your lips together. And frown slightly? Yeah. It's like almost an annoyance and disapproval yeah. combined. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that's something that maybe I adopted from my mom, perhaps, in her body language. But in terms of being uncomfortable, I think one thing that I've noticed that I do sometimes is I will... Oh, this is really funny. I've never even put this together. That I sometimes, when I'm uncomfortable speaking to someone or interacting with someone, I'll slightly take on elements of their speech patterns or their accent to put myself more at ease because I feel so uncomfortable interacting with them that maybe I'll adopt, again, some of their linguistics or speech pattern or their way of speaking to, I don't know, put us both on the same playing field or put myself at ease a little bit. I've noticed that. That reminds me of one of our mutual friends, and I won't say her name because I don't want to like call her out that specifically, but you'll probably know who I'm talking about. She'll actually like change her accent to a different accent when she's talking to certain people. <laughs> like full on, like she'll go, do you know who I'm talking about? I don't actually. I actually don't know who you're talking about. That's why my brain is like- I feel like you and I discussed this one time because I remember feeling- Uncomfortable? So- taken aback by it and it was kind of subtle and I was like is this is she doing what I think that she's doing and I feel like we were on a call with somebody or something was we were in some scenario together and I remember being so confused because her voice completely changed and it just happened so abruptly that I I just didn't know if I was imagining it. (laughs) How extreme was it? Is it to the point, like, say, if she was talking to, like, a Latinx person, like, she would all of a sudden change from whatever her standard, I guess, American accent is into, like, okay, so when we meet at the restaurant, you're going to make a right esperanza, and then you're going to go down, and they have the best tortas in Los Angeles. Like, did she take it to that level where she completely starts to, like, change the pronunciation of words? A little bit. Yeah. I don't know if it's as extreme, but you do that, Jason. I think you do that, though, out of um, you're not like trying to do it around certain people with their pronunciations. It seems to me like you are trying to be respectful by pronouncing things in the mother tongue. 
That is correct. Yes. Like when you say, I say Pura Vida and you say. Oh, Pura Vida. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's also too, like sometimes I think when I pronounce things in the mother tongue, which is a great expression, by the way, that it phonetically sounds better to my ears. Right. Like you just gave that example of one of our favorite <laughs> restaurants and pizzerias and nothing wrong with this expression, but like Pura Vida, it's very like frontal and nasal and American sounding like Pura Vida versus like Pura Vita. It's like there's just a, a lilt to it and a lightness in a different way. So I think you're right on with that, Winnie, is I'm trying to be respectful, but I also in a lot of instances prefer the way things are pronounced as close to the mother tongue as possible. I prefer the way it feels in my body and the way it sounds. Fair enough. I kind of prefer it that way too, but I struggle in general to pronounce things correctly, even like American words. <laughs> I don't have the talent or the desire, I suppose, to go that extra mile that you do, but I always appreciate it. And it's always kind of like, it stands out when you do that, Jason, because you'll switch from your American accent into whatever the accent is or the pronunciation is for a different language. And it's kind of like jarring at first. But oh, then interesting. Like, kind of cool. Yeah. I know that uh, your, your girlfriend, Laura, likes to kind of make fun of you for that. Do you get self-conscious when somebody makes fun of you for it? Not at all. No. No, because I <laughs> I have to make fun of myself for it. You know what I mean? It's something where I don't feel like my intention is to appropriate anything or make fun or try and hijack as you said, the mother tongue or the culturally appropriate way of pronouncing something, which that's another thing is like What's appropriate or inappropriate in this? You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with pronouncing it. I mean, but how far are you going to take it, right? As an example, being where I'm from, Detroit, you know, that's a French word. And so I joke sometimes, like people are, <laughs> are like, where are you from originally? I'm like, Detroit. They're like, huh? Like Detroit, okay? Like, but technically the way to pronounce that word in the original mother tongue is Detroit. But I'm not going to walk around being like, oh, I'm from Detroit. Like, it's Detroit. So I, I do pick and choose. I mean, I'm blatantly inconsistent with this. But when Laura makes fun of me, or you point it out, or I, I make fun of myself, I just, to me, I see it as like a personal quirk almost. <laughs> and if people get annoyed by it, uh, they get annoyed by it. Fair enough. Well, this has nothing to do really with what I was going to bring up, although <laughs> okay, I, I started this conversation because... I found myself starting to feel uncomfortable and I could see my mouth start to like make my uncomfortable face. And then I felt myself wanting to laugh before I started on this subject matter. And I noticed that it was because it feels a little uncomfortable. And this subject matter feels uncomfortable to me because it feels almost like something that like emotions that we suppress to be culturally appropriate or like maybe that's not the right term here. I feel like sometimes we don't say what we really feel because A, we don't want to make people uncomfortable or B, it doesn't feel appropriate to express these emotions or maybe it feels unprofessional to talk about some of these things. And I'm really fascinated when something is kind of like stigmatize like, ooh, like we don't talk about those things. You know what I mean? Like we don't talk about those things in this family. We don't talk about those things in this workplace. We don't talk about these things as friends. Even just saying that out loud evokes kind of like a triggered emotion for me of 
what do you mean that you don't talk about it? Like that kind of forbidden thing. And I'm sure for you, Jason, as a rebel, that it triggers you too, because maybe you immediately want to do what you're told you shouldn't do. And I think in general, I tend to reject anything that's done because of like tradition or like kind of this, that's the way we've always done it mentality. Yeah. And I think if the listener hasn't heard me talk about this before, with my tendency being a questioner, that's part of my personality trait is that I will question anything before doing it. And if somebody says to me, well, that's just the way things are done, I'm super resistant to that. Like it just mentally, it's not an acceptable answer to me because that gives me zero context for why I should do something. It's not a good answer for me. So if you say to me, we just don't do that, immediately going to ask why. And then maybe if there's still no understanding of the reason why, I'm not going to do it because I don't operate that way. I need to have a good reason for doing something or not doing something. Can you give me some specific examples, Whitney? Oh, we're going to get into them. We're going to get into them. Yeah. Because the emotional charge I feel on this part of the conversation already from you makes me curious growing up specifically whether teachers, I know that you weren't raised necessarily in like a strict religious context or anything like that, but I'm curious in your origin story of what kind of things did your parents or your relatives or your teachers or instructors say to you in that context you're describing? And as a child versus now as a grown adult woman, what were your reactions or responses as a child to those kind of things? And specifically, what do you remember being said in this context? I mean, honestly, my intention wasn't to get into any of that, but just to appease you, Jason. I'll, I'll no, share. No, I mean, like, we got to go there. We well, I don't think there. we have to go there, but I mean, because that's my like intention was not to talk <laughs> about that. My intention was to bring up another subject matter. But I would like to know, though, you know, just I'm curious. No, I understand. <laughs> I guess. I don't, you know, this is the thing. When I learned what my tendency was as a questioner, I don't know if it's necessarily something that, again, if it's nature versus nurture. Like, I don't know if I developed my questioner tendency because of how I was raised. I don't know if that's part of what you're asking. So I don't necessarily have that many examples because it's constant. I mean, this is the thing. It's like asking, well, what did you rebel against? You're constantly rebelling because that's your tendency. It's not like a couple defining moments in your life necessarily. I mean, unless it is for you, Jason, but for me, I'm constantly questioning everything and thus I don't really have a solid answer to give. I think the main thing I would say about my childhood versus where I am now is that I am developing the courage to question without feeling like I have to suppress myself or do something just because somebody told me to do it. And that is really like healing in a lot of ways, because I think as kids, it's very easy for adults or any type of like parental figure, anyone who's kind of perceived as in charge as, well, you should just do this because I told you to, or you should just do this again, like even at a workplace, I remember in certain jobs. And part of the reason I don't feel like I thrive in environments like that is I really need context for why I'm doing something. And if someone says, that's just the way things are done, I know the feeling more than I know the specific examples, Jason. And like, I just feel like in so many jobs I was in, I would hear that. And in the context of what I want to talk about today, it's more just like this subject matter, I feel like is something people don't typically talk about because it's perceived as like maybe unprofessional 
to discuss some of these things. And just to dive right into it, I feel like this was something that Jason and I were discussing offline. And this was, I got really thrown off by your question, to be honest, Jason. So I just need to pause to reframe it. Okay. It's kind of like when you're in a improv class and somebody doesn't go with what you're saying and suddenly you're like, "What? Do, <laughs> I'm not going in the direction I intended to go. So now I have to find my way back to it. Yeah, I'm so completely thrown off right now. I need a moment. All right. I think even in that case, Jason, like I felt like you were pressuring me to talk about something that I didn't intend on talking about. And so I went with it. And then <laughs> it threw me off my game in terms of what I was um, trying to move us into. Now, I guess we're both uncomfortable then, aren't we? Because I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of pressuring you, which wasn't, it was more curiosity, I suppose, that came across as pressure. But now I'm like, oh, don't. Like, I didn't know that that would necessarily derail your train of thought to that degree, you know? Yeah. But I get it. I get it. It's like when you're in the flow and, you know, whether it's on stage or, or music or whatever, I feel like when you're on a specific creative track and it's flowing and it's flowing and then you get a phone call or you get an email or some sort of interruption, it's really difficult to jump on the exact same track you were on. Like, I totally get where you're coming from. It's challenging. Yeah. Which is why it's like, sometimes when you're in a space of flow, like the podcast, like we dive in without knowing what the specific direction is, it can be hard to get back to it like we're experiencing this moment. So I apologize. It wasn't my intention to derail you. No, that's fine. I guess I'm just uh, reflecting on a lot of different things that come up in it. It's like when you're not expecting to think about something and then it comes up and you're like, oh, like now I have something else to consider in this moment. But I think I am able to get back into that mindset that I had for this episode, which was, I guess it's about setting boundaries with people. And like, it's kind of simultaneously creating boundaries and breaking boundaries at the same time. And I think that's such an important life skill to have. And I think a lot of people struggle with this because we do live in a time and or society that encourages us to be perfect. And I think part of that desire to be perfect is also that desire to not step on anybody's toes and to please people. I think that's a huge struggle that a lot of us have, which is people pleasing. And this idea of, I want to do what's right for me, but I also don't want to hurt anybody's feelings along the way. And I want to make sure that people are happy. And Part of that, I think, does come back to our tendency. So the other tendencies, which is the obliger and let's see, I'm the questioner, Jason's the rebel, there's the obliger, and then there's one other that I can't remember. But I think a lot of the tendencies, aside from the rebel, I don't know if you experience this much, Jason, but a lot of it is about making sure that other people are okay. And sometimes some people act out of appeasing other people before themselves. Some want to make themselves happy before they make others happy. It's like putting on the oxygen mask on yourself first. And then some people, I think a rebel is an interesting case where I don't know if it's ever about making yourself or somebody else happy. I'm actually, I often get confused about the rebel because it's like, what are you being driven by if it's not about yourself or others? Well, okay. Do you want me to comment on that or was it a rhetorical question? No, definitely comment on it. Okay. I think that the work that we 
have been talking about in terms of the Enneagram, that me diving into that like wholeheartedly, I mean, if the context of that episode has kind of merged in my mind with this tendency of being a rebel, and here's what I mean. What I've read about the Enneagram 4 is that there's a real somehow deep desire or drive to be unique and special, and that a lot of the depression or emotional pitfalls that an Enneagram can experience as an Enneagram 4 is like feeling like we're not unique, feeling like we're not special, even though inside we know we're different. Like I'm different than you. I'm not like you. I have special gifts. I have like a higher level of talent. I see the world differently. I say that as an overlap to rebelliousness because I think even at a young age, I remember specifically surveying maybe five, six, seven years old, looking at the adult relationships in my family as an example like my aunts, my uncles, my grandma, grandpa, my mom, my dad. And I was like, no one's happy. Like I had a sense of an intuitive sense that like, wow, they're in this marriage, they're in this relationship, but they're not happy. And I somehow was like, okay. And I didn't think about it in this way. Like I'm going to rebel against, you know, a, a conventional container of marriage or monogamy or anything like that. But it was just an example of me observing things that a lot of people were doing in society looking at the result and saying, I don't want that. That's fucked up. Like people are doing that. They're not happy. They're not joyful. They're not fulfilled. And that extended to also some of my early musings about vegetarianism and veganism. It was like, everyone's eating you know, meat and artificial foods and processed foods and sugar and fried foods. They're all unhealthy. They're all overweight. They're all unhappy. Fuck that. So for me, it, it's almost like they're, my desire for uniqueness, my desire to stand out, my desire to be, I don't even know, an avatar of some kind, you know, is linked to rebelliousness in the sense that I look at what other people are doing, I see it doesn't work well, and I'm like, I'm going to do the complete different thing. Not the opposite necessarily, but I'm going to do something completely different than the way they're doing it. And that drives me. And the Enneagram has played into that and has helped me understand why I've been so rebellious my entire life. This is actually really interesting. Our Enneagram episode doesn't come out for a few more weeks. So we encourage you, the listener, to subscribe so that you will be alerted when it comes out, because I think it's going to be in uh, mid-September. And it's a really interesting conversation that got us both thinking a lot about this. I'd be curious to see how the Enneagram might play into the four tendencies. Or how is there overlap? Is there like, is a certain tendency typically a certain type of Enneagram? Or like, is it kind of like astrology where like it depends on some, so many different factors? You're not just like a certain sign. It depends where your entire chart is and all these different factors that might make up who you are. And it is really interesting to think about what drives us and what we resist and what we are interested in. And That's the fascinating thing about boundaries for me and communication in general. And this is a big part of this topic is that we can so easily miscommunicate with people in general. But when it comes to setting our boundaries, it is really easy to either not feel comfortable communicating boundaries or not feel successful in communicating boundaries. And I actually had this experience myself recently as I've been developing my new program, Beyond Measure. I wasn't intending on talking about this, but it's something that hits close to home today is I've been testing out my new program, Beyond Measure, with a small group of people. And, And every week, I tend to reach out to a few new people and ask them for feedback on it. And I've been doing a lot of live calls. 
And it's been such a vulnerable process because Beyond Measure as a program is like one of the most close to home projects I've ever worked on before. And I've just been facing all sorts of resistance and fear and confusion and all just like different types of emotions have come up for me along the development process of this new program and venture that I'm on. And there are times where it feels really great and I'm feeling very rewarded and confident with it. And other times where I just feel so fearful and vulnerable and sensitive. And one of the things that I struggle a lot with is that vulnerability of asking somebody to give me feedback on something. And it's a simultaneous thing of what are they going to say? And are they saying things that are truthful or are they just saying it to be nice? You know, and then in the process of inviting people in on this program, I've been trying to figure out how to communicate effectively where I give them the space to say yes or no to things and to communicate that with confidence. And it's really been interesting because, you know, we going back to an episode we did fairly recently about ghosting, there have been a few people that have kind of like ghosted. And it's funny how even in like a professional or personal setting, ghosting can affect you the same way that it would if you were being ghosted romantically. And we talked about this in a different episode, which we'll link to in the show notes. And if you haven't visited our website yet, it's wellevator.com, spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And we have resource section for every single episode. So you can go back and click on things that we reference like previous episodes and future episodes. And I was really reflecting on that conversation, Jason, that we had about ghosting because I've had a couple instances with that where I would invite people to test out this new program that I'm doing and they would say yes. And then like today, somebody completely ghosted. Like she said that she was going to be on this call that I did and she never showed up and she never apologized. Like at least till this point, there has not been communication. And I thought, this is really interesting. Like, why did she ghost? Why didn't she communicate to me that she wasn't going to be there? Why did she say yes when maybe she wanted to say no? And it also was a great reminder to try not to take things personally and try not to make assumptions, which actually, as I was processing this in the Beyond Measure group that I had, one of the wonderful members of there who remain anonymous just because it's meant to be a safe space he brought up this book called The Four Agreements. Is it called The Four Agreements, Jason, by Don Miguel Ruiz? Uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, classic. So, and in that book, one of the big lessons is not to take things personally in it. Yes. And probably the most challenging right. one, too, I would say. Right. That is easily the most challenging one of the four agreements. Yes. Is one of the other agreements not to make assumptions as well, or is that like tied into another agreement? Mm, it's been probably since 2007 when I read that book. So, I. To be perfectly honest and transparent, I don't remember what they okay. are. <laughs> I read it once and then was like, okay, on to the Eckhart Tolle book. Thanks. <laughs> that was like 2007 was that period of time where I was like, okay, power of now, yeah. four agreements. Well, okay. So here they are. Oh, yes. So yeah. It is assumption. So the four agreements are one, to be impeccable with your word. To, don't take anything personally. Three, don't make assumptions. And four, always do your best which is actually really great advice. The book sounds really simple, but it's a beautiful read if you haven't read it yet or you haven't reread it like Jason, just as a reminder of these things. So anyways, this is a good lesson for me today because 
I had a tendency to take things personally and think like, oh, did this person kind of quote ghost me because of something I did or said? Do they basically, is it because of me? In the four agreement, they say, well, nothing others do is because of you. And what others people say is actually a projection of their own reality and their own dream. And taking things personally actually adds to needless suffering. And then the next step was like, okay, well, why did this person not show up to the call? And I kind of went through all these scenarios in my head. And again, like even calling it ghosting is like making an assumption there. So if I can work on not making an assumption and asking questions, it's more helpful. So I actually reached out to that person earlier today. Haven't heard back yet, but I said, hey, like I didn't hear from you. You said that you were going to be there. Is everything okay? And just kind of asking that question instead of sitting in a place of making assumptions, right? But part of the reason I bring this up is because I wondered if this person decided to quote ghost, at least temporarily, simply because they didn't know how to create their own boundaries. They didn't know how to communicate no as their answer. And I wonder how many people do things because they feel pressure, because they feel obligated, because they want to please somebody So they do something that they don't really want to do or they do something that they don't really feel comfortable doing. And this ties back to the bigger point that I wanted to explore with you today, Jason. And we actually have been exploring offline, which is personally and professionally, we can often say yes to too many things and we can get so burnt out and overwhelmed that we end up actually not doing a good job professionally or not pleasing anybody. We end up letting down people because we're overextended. Or we get to a place where we're so burnt out, we don't even have the energy to communicate anymore. And maybe that lets people down. And so it actually serves us more to create boundaries. But it's not always easy to create boundaries because we have to learn how to communicate them and we have to figure out what they are. And so much can be miscommunicated while creating boundaries because a lot of people take things personally or they make assumptions, you know. And I think coming back to this idea of the four agreements, The first one is to be impeccable with your word and have integrity. And I think it's really tough when you say you're going to do something. If you don't do it, you're out of integrity. But what if you didn't do it because you weren't honoring your boundary? And so then you end in this rock in a hard place where you're like, okay, I intended to be in integrity with my word. I am saying what I mean here. I'm trying to be impeccable. But... I didn't realize till after I said yes to something that I didn't actually want to do it or I wasn't able to do it. That's really tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. It's tricky because I think what we're getting down to now is self-awareness. And we're talking about, I think, getting so clear about our yeses and our nos and our not right nows. And this is something that I still struggle with in moments, Whitney, right? That when I say get an email or direct message or receive a correspondence with someone who's like, hey, can you help promote this thing on your Instagram or your social media? And there's no real exchange involved. They're not offering money or a promotional exchange. They're just asking. This is a pretty common thing, I think, in our line of work where people are asking for us to leverage our reputation, our platforms, our connections to promote something for someone else, right? Pretty common ask. And sometimes I will say yes out of some innate desire to be of service because I realize this was a conversation you and I had offline actually this past week that a lot of brands and people are really struggling right now. They're struggling financially, they're struggling emotionally. And I feel like sometimes I've actually gone against my intuition of saying, 
my gut is like, yeah, don't just relax, take care of yourself, you know, don't do this. But then my brain sometimes will be like, no, 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 they're really struggling and you know, you should help out. And then the should start. So I actually need to get better at examining being clear about communicating what my boundaries are and coming from that place of intuition versus saying yes to things out of some sense of obligation or duty or service. This is tough though. It's tough because this is a very nuanced thing we're talking about because there's an overarching spiritual principle, one of many that guides my life right now, which is sometimes it is really important to choose the good over the pleasurable. And sometimes the good might not feel like the good. You know, it's like, oh, I got to get up and like, whatever, go rescue this cat, rescue this dog. I agreed to go feed the homeless. I'm going to go feed like a few examples of like, there's something in my body that's like, oh, I really don't feel like doing it. Sometimes even on the podcast, right? Like, I don't feel like recording today, but there's a choice of the good over the pleasurable. Would a part of me rather be on the couch right now watching basketball, you know, eating marshmallow fluff, Nadamu ice cream? Fuck yeah. But we're here and we're doing it, right? And so it's a nuanced thing we're talking about, Whitney, of boundaries, self-awareness, communicating our needs and desires clearly, our sense of service and duty. Are we a people pleaser? This is a thick sandwich to dissect right now that we're talking about. It's a thick sandwich. Absolutely. And I think going back to what I was talking about at the beginning, which is like tradition or this is the way things are done. Part of that for me is I think that pressure to do something that you don't really want to do, but you do it because everybody else is doing it or you do it because you feel like you owe somebody something or like you were saying, Jason, you do it because you want to be supportive. And I think it's really easy to say yes without checking in on ourselves. And then- For sure. For sure. It's reactionary almost. Right. It's it's unconscious many times. Like we don't want to let people down. And I think, again, like traditionally there's this, whether it's part of your culture or your family or the way that your work environment is structured, it's like, to your point, Jason, like we do things even when we don't want to do them. And I think that is an important part of life. But yet that can also build resentment that can lead to burnout when you overextend yourself and you're saying yes to everything. And it is actually very, very tricky to figure out your boundaries and tune into your intuition. I think partially because of that mindset of, well, you just do it even if you don't want to, like that's really dangerous in a lot of ways. And to your point, Jason, sometimes it is appropriate to do things that you don't want to do. You know, we've talked about this before, like whether it's our podcast or working out, like I generally don't want to do a fitness class and I do it anyways. And then I'm glad I did it. But every single time I go to work out, I am in that same mentality over and over and over again. I know that about myself. And the same thing can be said with certain work things. Like I've found myself with social media, to Jason's point here, like saying yes to promoting a product or something if I'm not getting paid for it. It's a very different thing energetically than when you're getting paid for something. And it's tricky as a content creator, whether it's a podcast or an Instagram post or a YouTube video or TikTok or whatever else. There's so much resistance that I face. And to go off on that tangent for a little bit, I really thought COVID would help me in this way. Like I remember at the beginning of this year, 2020, before I even knew about COVID or I can't remember exactly when I learned about COVID. I feel like it was in February. I was aware of it before it became bad in the US. And I think it started actually in like December or maybe a little bit earlier. But anyways, I remember specifically in January feeling 
for lack of a better term, off. And I felt like, gosh, if only I just had some time to myself, time to pause. If only I had like a cushion of money where I didn't have to do any work and I could just do whatever I wanted. If only I could like basically give myself permission. And then COVID happened and part of me was like, oh my gosh, this is so great because basically the whole world has been given permission to take care of themselves and to stay home and maybe not to work as much. And like for the first few months of COVID, it felt like you had this almost excuse. Most of us, not all of us, of course, there are the essential workers who aren't in that position. And then there were some people who may be in that position and not happy with it. So this certainly isn't to make an assumption. But for those of us like Jason and I who already worked from home and already got to make our own hours and already were, you know, our jobs were just kind of less traditional in that sense where I wouldn't say that my line of work was that affected by COVID. I think it was in some subtle ways, but a lot of what I do is more in my control. And so on some levels, it felt amazing because it was like, oh, well, the whole world suddenly understands. The whole world is basically okay with you staying home and not doing anything. And all these articles would come out and these social media posts about how we should all allow ourselves to rest and we all need to prioritize our health. And I was like, This is amazing. Like, finally, I can do that without feeling like an outsider, like I'm being judged for it. Because before COVID hit, I felt like it's the beginning of a new year. Like, you got to hustle. Like, you have a whole year to start new. For sure. And it's like in January, especially, there's all this pressure to go, go, go and take advantage of it and start life off on the right foot, you know, and that can feel really intense. And I often feel like in January, I actually do experience some tension, depression, resistance, resentment, like you're coming out of the holidays and suddenly you're like jumping from New Year's Eve until like January 1st. And like there's all this like cultural expectation that you're going to start working out and, you know, taking great care of your body and all these resolutions, you know what I mean? And so January can actually feel really intense. And oftentimes I'm spending January recovering from the holidays (laughs) And reflecting and trying to think about setting my year up for success. And so it was super interesting for me and and probably a lot of people that can relate to this to go from that into February and March of like, oh, this year is not going how we intended. And then like I felt like COVID in a lot of ways could be used as an excuse like, oh, well, I can stay home and be introverted. I don't have to socialize. I don't have to go to events. I don't have to fulfill these obligations anymore. But here's my big point is that remembering how I felt in January before COVID, I kind of like was wishing for those circumstances. And so when COVID hit, I was like, whoa, I kind of got in some ways what I asked for, even though it's certainly not in the way that I asked for it. I never (laughs) would have wished for a global pandemic and not to take lightly all of the people that have suffered health-wise from this. But it was like, oh my gosh, I'm in a position where I have permission to rest more. I'm in a position where people understand uncertainty more. I mean, all of these emotions I was struggling with, I suddenly no longer felt alone is my big point. And yet it wasn't enough. What do you mean? Because for those of us in our position, Jason, where we got a stimulus check, so it was like, quote, free money in some ways, and a lot of people going on unemployment, it's like you're kind of getting permission to do less. You're getting permission to go to less events, which can burn you out. You have like 
a reason to explain why your work's not done on time and you're late with things or like there were so many people I remember one month like it was also during Black Lives Matter actually when Black Lives Matter started in this you know current phase of it if you'd call it that after George Floyd's death at the beginning of June it's like here we are we kind of started to feel like maybe COVID was under control even though it turned out it really wasn't but there was like this sense of like summer is about to start and maybe things are, are shifting again. And then the heaviness that came along with George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor and all of these people that are with the police brutality and the cultural shift in focus. And it was like, oh, now our focus is placed on on that movement. And like every day I was spending thinking about Black Lives Matter and seeing what I could do as an ally. And I was just like putting so much mental energy into that. It seemed like nothing else mattered. And I remember one of the companies I was working with at the time said like, hey, there's a lot going on in this world. So if you don't get this done, it's okay." And I was like, great, this is so awesome. Like I'm getting permission to focus on something else other than work. And then like the time passed and COVID's still here. Black Lives Matter is still going on, but like everything just feels like we're in a little bit more of a flow. and the intensity has become a little bit more chill and like everything's not the same. Things aren't better. They're not fixed. But yet it almost feels like the world's trying to go back to normal. And I'm finding myself going, oh, but I don't feel like it was enough time for me to recover from the burnout. In fact, the burnout's still there. And in fact, the burnout is there in another way now because I'm mentally drained from COVID and I'm mentally drained from being involved as much as I know how to and have given my energy to Black Lives Matter. And it's a long-winded way to say like it's still it's still there even after all of that time that I thought maybe it would ease. I mean, that's a a long share on that sense, Jason. I'm curious what your experience has been. Like it's weird because it hasn't been exactly like a pause. It's not like I've really had a break. You know what I mean? At times, it has felt like we were given a break during COVID and given an excuse. And I threw Black Lives Matter in there. That's certainly not a break by any means. But I guess like because so much attention was being placed on Black Lives Matter, it felt like it was okay to pause everything else. So it was like a break from some things like, hey, we need to pay attention to something else that's important. Like we can put a pause on this. And my point is, I thought maybe a pause was what I needed. I thought a pause would help me. But I don't think that much has changed. It's interesting. And I'm curious for you, Jason, because like you're on unemployment right now. And so I'm like, does unemployment ease like the pressure of not having to constantly search for work? Or like, I think what comes along, you're kind of expected when you're on unemployment to be looking for work the entire time. But like, in a way, do you feel like because so many people are on unemployment, you don't feel as alone? And so it doesn't feel like there's a stigma there around it or... I don't know if that's the case as much as it is. There's sort of a dualistic thing happening for me where there is a sense of urgency simply because at the time of this recording, the $600 bonus money from the CARES Act went away. So there's not as much of a financial cushion at all. I mean, that's $2,400 a month less than what I was receiving before. So it's not nearly as big of a financial cushion as it was before. And adding to that was. I suppose this idea of I need to have some money and some financial resources set aside because who knows how this is going to play out. And I think the uncertainty of this entire situation 
just the massive uncertainty. And, and again, we've characterized this as uncertainty has always been an intrinsic aspect of our reality here. I think that we've just played a lot of illusion games of, yeah, I have security in my job and I have security in my relationship and I have security with my health. Well, if this time has shown us anything, is that's all an illusion, is there actually is no real kind of the emotional security that we would love to pretend like we have. It's just not there. And you look at the divorce rate during COVID, you look at the unemployment rate during COVID, you know, so I have a secure job, I have a secure marriage. It's not to plant the seed of doubt in the listener's mind, whoever's listening to this episode, but it's like, there's no such thing as certainty. There's just not. So I think just to roll back to your question, Whitney, my first time in my life being on unemployment with the $600 being rolled back, it's not as much of a financial cushion. And I do feel a greater sense of urgency. I've been talking with people over the course of this, you know, I had a huge commercial audition that didn't come through. I had two or three high-level positions that I was thinking about working for some different organizations that didn't come through. So, on the one hand, it's like it's not like I haven't been active in looking for new gigs or new employment, but the sense of urgency wasn't really there because of that extra $600 because of the stimulus check because of the other things, but now I do feel a higher sense of urgency. And it's creating, I suppose, different avenues of making income. For example, out of the blue, three days ago, I got hired to be a guitar teacher for 12 weeks. Someone hired me to be their guitar teacher for 12 weeks. Whoa. Yeah. That came out of the blue, completely out of the blue. It's like acquaintance called me up and he's like, hey, I've been wanting to take guitar lessons, but rather than learning on YouTube, I'd rather throw some bones your way and have you create a curriculum and he's a beginner. He's like, does not know anything. So I'm like, yeah, I can teach you in 12 weeks how to play songs on the guitar and have a basic understanding of this instrument. So what I'm realizing in my summary, Whitney, is I do feel a greater sense of urgency because I still do. I want to buy a house. I'm damn near 100% clear that I want to leave Los Angeles. And that requires money. You know, It requires money to relocate. It requires money to have a new chapter of your life and leave the old chapter behind. But could I have predicted someone would hire me for 12 weeks to be their guitar teacher? Hell no. So on the one hand, I feel a sense of urgency, but I also want to be open to new avenues of income and creativity that I didn't ask for. And we go back to the manifestation conversation. It's not like I threw up on my vision board or was in my meditations or prayers going, please help me find a guitar client. Please help me find a new student. I had no thoughts at all about that. But here it came through the pipeline, right? It's a huge blessing. So I'm trying to stay open to things that I'm not even considering because I feel like with what I've been focusing on project-wise, it's been kind of the same thing that I've been doing for the last 15 to 20 years. It's been a gig as a chef or you know, doing social media promo for different brands or doing marketing consulting or copywriting or freelance writing. And maybe what I've been doing for the past 20 years of my career, maybe that is not applicable anymore. Maybe there's other things that are even greater or more suited for me that I'm not even aware of. And so that's just a long-winded way of saying, I'm trying to stay open. I'm trying to be ardent and adamant about putting myself out there for work, but I also am exhausted emotionally and I'm exhausted physically. And I feel like the subconscious stress and anxiety of the last five months, is it weighs on me. And there are days like I got plenty of sleep last night. I've been eating great. I woke up this morning, the day we're recording this podcast with, and I was like, why am I so tired? And I have to be mindful of not beating myself up because that's my old paradigm, right? Of like, you shouldn't be this tired. You've been taking care of yourself. You're getting plenty of sleep. Something must be wrong with you. You're fucking lazy. Like that old, old 
negative critic is like, you shouldn't be tired right now. Maybe it's okay to be tired. Maybe it's okay to be tired because of everything that's been going on and how stressful and anxiety ridden and some of us facing that uncertainty and learning new spiritual or mental coping mechanisms to deal with that level of uncertainty. And I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode with that. Yeah, for the past 20 years, you know, even before I went to college and got my degree, I was very clear on what the next step was, right? And maybe you can relate to this too, Wit, or the listener can relate like, okay, I've got my plan. I'm going to do this. And then next I'm going to go get this job. And then I'm going to ask for a pay raise and I'm going to find my partner. It's almost like what Taylor Proctor was talking about in that episode about finding happiness we had with her, which we will link to that episodes for the show notes of this episode at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. She talked a lot about this roadmap, right? And I feel like to some degree, Wit, it's not all gone to plan, but I've had some kind of roadmap for two decades. And during this COVID period, people are like, well, what are you going to do next? And what do you, I'm like, I don't fucking know what I'm going to do next. I'm just trying to fucking survive. I'm trying to like not break down mentally right now. I'm trying not to like succumb to depression and suicidal ideation and lose my mind. Like if I get through the day with some semblance of sanity and wholeness, to me, that's a win. And I was talking to my mom the other day. I'm like, if we literally mentally and physically and in always just survive 2020 or however long this shit is going to go on, to me, that's a win. People are like, you should be thinking about thriving. I'm like, that's great. But literally- most days, all I can think about is survive. And that's so important to bring up, Jason, because I think part of the reason you and I get so fired up about this is because when someone puts pressure on you during this time or when you feel like there's pressure on you, but people don't know the reality of what you're dealing with, that can be so aggravating. I think part of what, well, I know part of what got me wanting to talk about this was an experience I had last week where I felt like somebody was like pressuring me to complete a project that I was doing for free without, without getting the details of what that was. It was like kind of like I agreed to do something as we do many times. So for the listener, you know, Jason and I being on social media, unfortunately, <laughs> we're in industry where it's very commonplace to ask people like us to do a lot of free work because other people don't perceive it as work. So to be specific about it, it's like we're often given products to in exchange for promotion. And I had this moment this week where I just got so irritated. And part of it was irritation with myself. So going back to the part of the point of this conversation, which is about setting boundaries, like I agreed to this. It's not like I was forced into it, you know. It's important to acknowledge yeah, that. Yeah, like somebody said, hey, like, do you want to try this thing? And I said yes to it. But it's really tough being in this industry as a content creator because I think a lot of brands or people that have products or services that they want you to try, like, they don't fully recognize how much work it takes and how much mental energy it takes. And this is a huge part of this is that let's just say somebody gives me a food to try, which is a commonplace. I mean, pretty much every single day I get an email or a direct message. I think the same is true for Jason and most content creators. If you're on Instagram, <laughs> YouTube, TikTok, Pinterest, Facebook, all these different platforms, if you have an audience, if you've been creating good content, people will find you and they'll reach out to you and say, hey, do you want to try this? And there's like this unspoken rule in our industry that like, if you're a content creator, like you should be grateful if somebody wants to send you a $15 product in exchange for you posting. 
And I think a huge issue that we have in this industry is that because so many of us have done it, myself included, for many years, it's like, oh, like that's what people do. Like they're going to give us free advertising. But here's the thing when I started to break down, and I've done this many times in my career, this is a new thing, but I started to break down the other day. I'm like, okay hypothetically, somebody sends you something and it costs $15 to buy it. They give it to you for free. Number one, I'm grateful. Like I love trying new things. It's a huge part of my passion and what I've built part of my career on, right? It's like trying new foods or trying new body care products or new clothes, et cetera, all this stuff, right? We get it most of that for free. And that's awesome. If you're not a content creator, it probably sounds like the best career ever. And it's awesome in a lot of ways. I'm not diminishing it at all. But when you really break it down, that $15 product costs the brand probably half that. So let's just say five to seven dollars to make it of their cost. Now, granted, they ship it to you and there's a lot of other factors, but it's not that expensive to my point. The value of a content creator is basically in place of or in addition to marketing, you know, it's or it's a part of marketing. Whereas the idea is if they give you this product and you recommend it to however many thousands thousands of people that follow you online, if a small percentage of those people buy it and you get at least one or two people to buy your product, like it's been worth your time as a producer of that product. So let's just say in my case, if I promote it on my Instagram where there's like over 17,000 people following me, like chances are a few people will buy that product and that company has, has made some money. It kind of sounds like a good exchange, but then when you think about it, I'm basically being, quote, compensated by giving a free product that won't pay my bills. And if that product is only worth $15 that I could have spent of my own money, and then I break down not only all the work that I'm doing in that moment to promote the product, but my entire experience leading up to that and all the time it took to create the trust that I have with my audience, like that's so valuable. And it's a huge issue as content creators because so many brands don't take into consideration all those things. You know, like it's often been compared to like if you wanted to hire a plumber and like, hey, plumber, like I'll cook you a free meal if you'll do the plumbing on my house. If that plumber isn't like a good friend of yours, they're probably going to say no because that plumber has to spend the time to come to your place, bring their equipment that they've paid for and do the plumbing and all of that work that it took them to learn how to do the plumbing, all of the money they spent to learn how to do that, all of the years that they've been building up their business and getting that aware. And like, there's so much that goes into it. Of course, the plumber is going to say no, they're not going to want to do a trade with you. Like that's their craft. And it's really frustrating as content creators that we kind of have put ourselves in this position of those exchanges for our craft that many of us put a lot of work into. And so there's this kind of underlying resentment that goes on there, but then also simultaneously being like, well, I'm the one that agreed to do this. So the question then becomes like, why do we keep agreeing to do these things? Well, as Jason said earlier, we agree for so many different reasons. We agree because we believe in something like for us as vegan content creators, we believe in the vegan movement. It's kind of like doing our service (laughs) in some ways to encourage people to go vegan or be more eco-friendly or take care of their well-being and their health their health. So it's like kind of giving back. But then if that's your whole career, how do you make money from it? Then you have to spend all of this time making money. So that's a really long winded history about 
our standpoint here and to bring it back to my present experiences. I had this moment last week that I shared with Jason where I'm like, gosh, why have I said yes to all of this? And why don't these companies understand or show to me, communicate to me in some way that they understand my value and they're grateful for it? Why are they pressuring me? Why are they asking me to rush? Why are they on my case all the time to do something for them for free? I should be able to do that on my time the way that I want to do it. So when I want to and how I want to do it because I'm doing it for free. Like that's a volunteer type of scenario, right? But then coming back to one thing that you said, Jason, before you chime in again, and thank you for listening, is that the mental health side of this is also needs to be addressed because I think that so many people are suffering with their mental health, but it has not been acceptable, like culturally acceptable or encouraged to talk about these things. So last week I was feeling so burnt out and tired and just like I did not have the mental energy to do things for free. I needed to spend my precious mental energy and my physical energy on making money so I can pay my bills. And yet these companies sometimes put so much pressure on us as if they don't even realize that we have to make money elsewhere. If they're not the ones paying us, some we have to make money somewhere. And it's so tough because then it's like this whole weird, like, complex dance that we've put ourselves into where, or the system we've put ourselves into where it doesn't feel like people really understand. And yet we need to have more awareness and compassion for everybody else's experiences. And especially during COVID, especially during Black Lives Matter, like recognizing that so many of us are burnt out in general or extended so far beyond. And some of us might be on unemployment because our jobs were canceled. And maybe as a result of that, as Jason was describing, that we feel awful about ourselves. Maybe we feel like a failure. Maybe we are depressed because people are sick around the world and being killed by police or judged for the color of their skin. Like There's so much going on. It feels so heavy. So why doesn't the whole world have more compassion for that? And then you wonder, maybe they do, but everybody's just trying to survive and maybe they're just trying to do their jobs. And there's just like, it comes back to that capitalist mentality of hustling like, hey, you might be suffering, but you got to continue on and make money. That's right. Right. Yeah. It's dehumanizing in a lot of ways. And I think what you're talking about, Wit, is is a call for deep compassion and empathy and acknowledging the humanity of one another. And I mean, that's certainly not a new remedy for a lot of the chaos and suffering and pain that we cause one another, humans that is on planet Earth and animals and the Earth. You know, the system that we've been in of every person for themselves and this toxic capitalist, radical individualist structure of get yours and fuck everyone else. Not saying everyone's like that, but in subtle ways, if you're in mainstream human society, that paradigm's hard to escape. It's hard to escape of clawing and clamoring your way out of the crab bucket while everyone's trying to pull you back down just to escape. And I don't know if this moment in human history is necessarily a deconstruction of the systems that we know are no longer, and they've never in some ways been humanistic. I mean, they've been feeding the privileged few who've benefited from the construction of those systems. But as I think we talked about with Latrice Richards on the podcast, her episode, that there's some middle ground between total dismantling of the system and reformation, that there's slow, slow progress and reformation happening in some areas. And then in some areas, they need to be dismantled completely and right now. And I suppose this is my long-winded answer of agreeing with you, Whitney, that if through the chaos, the changes, the dismantling, the reformation, the upheaval, it really feels 
Ooh, it feels to me like this is a moment of great change and reckoning for human society. I don't want to say the planet, because even if we were to be wiped off the face of the earth, I don't believe that we will, at least not right now. But if humans were to disappear off the face of the earth, the earth would be fine. And everyone's like, oh, the end of the world, the end of the world, like the world is going to go on. The sun will keep shining for, we estimate, whatever, how many more billions of years. Like the earth will regenerate itself, as we've even seen during COVID. But for us, I think if we don't employ more compassion, empathy, humanity, understanding with each other, there's a great chance we could wipe each other out. We could wipe ourselves out. There's a great chance of that. And I think all of this that's happening is to wake us the fuck up, ultimately, whatever that means. And some people don't want to wake up. Some people, I think, are perfectly happy with the system the way it is because it's benefiting them, right? There's a wake up to what? Everything's great. I just think that right now, Whitney, one of the best things we can do is to take care of ourselves and to take care of each other. And I know that that might sound like a pedantic meme type of quote, but I can't help but thinking like, how can I care for myself, care for my loved ones, care for my community? Like, what does that look like right now? What is caring for myself deeply, caring for my loved ones, caring for my community? What does that look like? And that's a question that really, some form of that question wit, I sit with every single day. Yeah. And for me, in addition to that, it's like, how can I communicate this to other people? And this is part of where I got stuck this week because one of the brands that I had accepted products from had been kind of pressuring me to post about them. And I felt like so resentful. I was, you know, again, for everything that I've mentioned, I'm thinking, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have so many important things going on in the world, like Black Lives Matter. Like, so many things are more important than me posting about this product just so you can sell more of it. Give me that time to do it when I feel ready. Why are you rushing me? These are the emotions and thoughts that are going through my head. And I thought, how do I communicate this? Because I'm trying to be professional. And yet I'm also communicating with another human being. And going back to what I started talking about, it's like, why isn't it more acceptable for us to talk about these things in professional settings? Why do we kind of put on this mask of professionalism? Why can't we just strip that away and say, hey, there's a lot going on in the world and I'm going through a lot myself personally. So I have not done that yet. Will you please stop pressuring me? Like, that's really what I wanted to say. And I spent like days trying to formulate a response because I wanted to find that balance. And I just felt so stuck because all I wanted to do was humanize my situation. I wanted it to be understood. I wanted this person to look at me as a human being and not as a machine. You know, like, yes, that's part of the issue here. And it's really tough because it's not to make this assumption that I'm not being looked at as a human being, but we have this barrier through our communication sometimes where it feels like we won't be understood. We feel like we'll be treated. And I think part of it's just that perpetuation of this capitalist mentality and the hustle culture that we've talked so much about is like maybe that person on the other end can't even see me as a human being because they're stuck in the hustle culture. And it reminds me also of like with police brutality. I think police have been conditioned to not view citizens as human beings. They're trained to almost view them as the enemy, just like you would if you were a soldier in a war. You know, you're trained to view the enemy as to not view them as human beings, to not think about their children that are home. And that's so disturbing. And to compare like the workplace with police and the military is may seem like an extreme, but like 
how different is that if we are constantly putting on these masks and blinders to the people that we're dealing with? And the same thing goes the other way around. I mean, there's a huge issue that's continuously promoted on platforms like TikTok where my eyes have really been opened to customer service and the the amount of rudeness that goes on with a customer to an employee and how poorly many employees are treated by customers as if that employee is not a human being. You know, like there's on TikTok, a stream of videos I see of customers feeling so entitled and they walk into these businesses, whether it's a restaurant or a retail shop, and they just complain and they just pick apart somebody and they shout rude things. And right now there's a lot going on with like the politics of wearing a mask and like people rebelling against their rights. And you just see these horrific videos, these moments that are caught on camera of people treating each other so poorly, again, without realizing that that person they're talking to is a human being. We see this online all the time through social media and the comments, the trolling that happens, like writing in horrible comments to people forgetting that there's somebody on the other end receiving that information. I take such a big issue with all of this. And when somebody is compassionate towards me and communicating well and taking into account how I'm feeling and not making assumptions about me either and not putting pressure on me, especially during these types of times where there's a very high chance that everybody in the world right now is struggling worse than usual. Because the conditions of our lives right now are drastically different and we're all handling it in different ways. And a lot of us are struggling. Anxiety is on the rise. Depression is on the rise. If we're going to make assumptions about anything, we should assume that the person that we're talking to is stressed out, anxious, and possibly depressed. That's, yeah, that's right on. So we need to treat people better. And also ask more questions to make sure that they're okay, that their boundaries are being set, that they're okay with the conditions, that things haven't changed for them. As we started talking about at the very beginning of this, you might say yes to something and realize that you said yes when you really wanted to say no. You may say yes to something and the conditions may change over time. And in my situation, like, This company I was dealing with, I had said yes to months before at the very beginning of COVID. Before I even realized how bad COVID was, I said yes to working with them. And months went by, so much changed. And now in August or end of July, whenever this was, they're kind of putting on all this pressure. And I'm like, don't you realize how much has changed since I said yes to them? Like, you should assume that my answer is either no or yes with different conditions. Like, why are you assuming that I'm? the same person that I was before COVID, before the Black Lives Matter protest started. Like, I just couldn't possibly assume that about anybody these days. To me, I want to proceed in the world with more compassion than ever and more love and sensitivity and gentleness. I want to encourage other people to do that too. And I am so grateful that we have this platform with this podcast to talk about these things and to work through them because we certainly don't have this all figured out. But I guess by discussing this out loud, I'm realizing how important that is for me to not make assumptions about anybody's situation. And again, if I do make an assumption to do it, to err on the side of 
this person is probably dealing with a lot right now and they need me to be gentle and kind to them and check in with them as opposed to treating them like they're a machine. Yeah, and maybe this situation will help us dissolve that strange barrier, Whitney, that you're talking about of, you know, this is how I communicate in my, quote, professional setting, or this is how I communicate in my, quote, personal setting. And these divisions, these boxes maybe that we have in our lives of conducting ourselves in different ways, it goes back to that in a way, an offshoot of how we started this episode talking about, I'll put on a different accent to make someone feel comfortable or make myself feel comfortable. And in some ways, yeah, that a business email is going to be different in terms of what I communicate to that person versus what I communicate personally. But maybe in honoring each other's humanity, we start to dissolve those barriers and we start to dissolve those boxes. But the other side of this coin in terms of honoring our needs, our humanity is also honoring our worth, right? And the one story that immediately comes to my mind when I think about communicating boundaries and worth and value and all of this is at the most extreme example is the Picasso napkin story. I've told you this story before, yes? The Picasso napkin story? Maybe, but I don't recognize the name. Okay. So there's a story that years ago, Picasso was sitting in a cafe in Paris and a fan of his, a person recognizes Picasso as he's about to leave and approaches him and asks like about making a quick sketch on a paper napkin in this cafe. And so Picasso, I guess, hems and haws and he acquiesces and he draws, Picasso's very famous, one of his things is he draws a dove, draws a dove, hands it back to the fan who recognized him, and then asks for a really large sum of money. And there's no real verification. I've seen some versions of the story say it was $50,000, $75,000, but keep in mind it's a dove on a napkin, okay? So he asked for this big sum of money. And this person like flings their head back in exasperation, like, are you kidding me? How can you ask that much? It took you literally one minute to draw this. And then Picasso looks at the person and goes, no, 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 my dear. It took me 40 years to draw this. Right. And it's the reason this comes up for me, Wit, is it's important for us, even in times of fear and desperation and panic, which these might all be emotions right now, that we remember that we have value as human beings that we remember that we have intrinsic gifts and talents and perspectives and experience that can be extremely valuable to a person who recognizes those things. And again, Picasso is an extreme example. is one of the most famous artists who's ever walked the face of the earth. But the point was that people can perceive things like us posting on social media, writing a blog post, doing a guest article. There's a million examples of the things that we get hit up as artists and entrepreneurs to do for other people. And in many cases, their perception is it's not really work at all, or it should only take you whatever to do this, forgetting that there's, in our cases, 10, 15, 20 years, depending on the bucket we're talking about, whether it's you know filmmaking and video editing or social media or marketing consulting. You, know, you and I have a decade or more of experience, depending on what a person is asking us to do. And it's important to, I think, we go back to the communication question of reinforcing that when we feel like someone is pushing us to do something. It's like, you know, not saying like, oh, I've been in this for 20 years. Don't you know who I am? You know, not that crass, but keeping in mind again, that our life experience, our talent, our heart, our passion, our energy, our creativity has fucking value. And that's the whole reason I'm relaying that Picasso story is in moments where I've had conversations about projects over COVID, there was one recently where a person had proposed that I take a you and I have not even talked about this yet. I haven't filled you in because it's recent, but 
there was a situation where I was having conversations and a person hinted at me working for like an equity stake. You did tell me about this. And I was like immediately thinking, how could you ever say yes to that? Right, right. And my whole thing was like, okay, you're not a publicly traded company. So what do you mean equity stake? You have no shares to give me. You know, there's no stock. There's nothing of that. Like, is it a profit share? Is it whatever? And I believe this person was kind of alluding to, hey, we'll forego a salary in the beginning and we can give you like an ownership stake. And I'm like, (laughs) ownership stake does not pay my rent and doesn't put food on the table. It doesn't pay my car note or my motorcycle note or, uh, you know, help me save for retirement. Like it's one of those moments of my version of a Picasso napkin story of like, yo, I've been in this like 20 years in marketing and you want to like hire me to be a marketing director you're going to need to pay me. (laughs) So I say this simply because I think it all ties into how we communicate with other people, Whitney, how we set our boundaries, how we determine our intrinsic value. Practice not saying yes to things. Practice it. That we are not going to feel regret or anger or resentment later. Doesn't mean we're going to nail it every single time, right? You brought up this example of saying yes to this thing pre-COVID, and now they're haranguing you a little bit about getting it done. We don't know how we're going to feel in the future, but I think it's important for us to practice these elements so that we reduce that sense of shooting ourselves in the foot, so to speak, later on. We're like, why did I say yes to this thing? I'm trying to reduce that in my life because it's a challenging feeling to make a decision and then later on go like, why did I say yes to that? Damn it. And also not beat ourselves up for over it. You know, that's another thing to practice. Absolutely. And the key word is practice because this is not easy. It takes ongoing practice. Maybe it never will ever feel easy. It's that life in itself is practice for something that, (laughs) I don't know, it's funny, the word practice to me often makes me feel like, well, if you practice it, then you'll get really good at it. But there are some things in life that you're just constantly in a state of practice with and you never feel like you've perfected it. You know what I mean? And I think that's an interesting like myth that if you do something enough that some one day you'll finally get it right because i think no matter what you're doing in life there's always something new to learn there's a new way to approach it and it's an ongoing process of figuring all this stuff out and i think that's part of it too it helps me in times like this to take the pressure off myself and realize i don't need to get it right because a lot of this stuff just doesn't matter nearly as much as we think it does in the moment. It's really not that big of a deal. And it's okay to mess up or do things in a way that we perceive as wrong. And then we just move on and we try to do our best the next time. And luckily, many human beings are forgiving of one another. And even when things can get really bad, if enough time goes by, we can find it in our hearts to give each other another chance. And I think That's the key too. If I'm going to make an assumption, I guess it'd be best for me to assume that I'll have another chance to do something and do my best to handle it however I know how in that moment. Well said. Well, should we change the tone of this intense episode into something a little bit more light and pleasant before we fully wrap things up? Yeah, let's bring in the low-fat mayonnaise for the sandwich. (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know half the stuff that comes out of my mouth. It's been a thick sandwich this episode, so let's lighten it with a little low-fat vegan mayo, a little veginase. It's not veganase, by the way, everyone. You're pronouncing it incorrectly. 
I wonder how many times I've pronounced it veganase versus veganase. Hmm. Let's begin with giving shout outs to a brand that we each love. Jason, who would you like to shout out today? I want to give big love to two brands that actually, I would like to say it was a surprise that I received this week, but I simply forgot that I had agreed to receive this package. So it was kind of a surprise. And then I was like, oh, right. I said yes to this like weeks ago. So there was a collaboration that our friends at Sunwink, who make the wonderful tonic herbal sparkling beverages, they did a collab with a company called Amass, which also infuses um, botanical herbs into vodkas and drink mixers and also started making hand sanitizer, which is some of the most wonderfully aromatic, herbaceous botanical hand sanitizer. It's super clean ingredients. So Amass and Sunwink both sent me this pretty extensive care package this week of Sunwink has all these new flavors. I got like their hibiscus, their detox ginger, their turmeric. They have brand new packaging. So it's just really effervescent and light. They sweeten everything with maple syrup. So it's not too sweet and kind of like gacky. And then Amass sent me this wonderful botanical infused vodka and this wonderful hand sanitizer. So I got this super beautiful package from both brands. And I've been enjoying the Sunwink and enjoying the hand sanitizer. And since I am not currently drinking because of a, a health issue I've been dealing with, I'm not drinking alcohol, I am actually going to gift the vodka. To me? <laughs> Unfortunately not, Whitney. I've already... I should be your number one. I'm a little envious hearing you talk about these brands. But the good news is I'm not a huge vodka lover. I have more <laughs> vodka than I know what to do with thanks to a collaboration yeah. I did with Absolute Vodka. I have a huge bottle of it at home that will probably take me a long time to get through. And I guess that's one downside to not socializing as much these days is I can't like bring it to a party and and pour it for other people. And it's hard to gift things like that that have already been opened because we have so many health concerns. So anyways, I'm not jealous of the vodka. I'm more jealous of the Sunwink. Envious, I should say. Well, you and I have a, a lunch scheduled for Tuesday, so maybe I'll bring one and you can enjoy it then. Well, great, because I really enjoyed the drinks that you gave me, the bitters. What are they called? The Bitter Housewife? Is that what that brand is called? Uh-huh. We talked about them in another episode, but I have still have two cans left, and uh, I actually enjoyed them even more than I thought. So it's been an, a nice gift. And they're drinks that you want to enjoy slowly. It's not like you're going to guzzle them and it's going to be over with. So, hmm... I feel a little bit overwhelmed with the number of brands that I could mention right now. Actually, you know who I would say that I am very grateful for is Walnut Farms. They make the walnut butters. Have they sent you any products recently, Jason? Because they just sent me two. No. This is where you get jealous of me. No. Two containers of their wonderful walnut butters. And... They are so enjoyable. I've actually down to maybe like a serving or two of each flavor. They gave me the original and the maples, like outstanding. And I'm down to maybe a tablespoon of each left, but I haven't touched them in like a few days because I don't want it to end. I don't know <laughs> how many people can relate to this, but when you savor like every last drop of something. So that's where I'm at with Wellnut. I usually eat it by the spoonful. It doesn't actually make it into a dish. But some of the things I like to do with walnut butter is actually make 
little um, dark chocolate cups with them, kind of like a peanut butter cup, but in this case, it would be a walnut butter cup. And I actually did a TikTok and uh, I think it turned it into a Pinterest video and maybe even a blog post, which I'll link to in the show notes. I use a different brand to make these nut butter cups and I made them with macadamia nuts and pecan nuts. And now I could add the walnut butters to the mix. But frankly, as much as fun as it is to make recipes out of products like this, they're also really delightful just by the spoonful. And the walnut butters just really hit the spot when I want something sweet. They do have some added sugar, but it's not that much. And it really just turns it into a a nice little treat every now and then versus a nut butter that's unsweetened that you would have kind of more in like a savory context or maybe like a sugar-free dish. And Jason, I know you love walnut as well. So I think you can attest to how lovely their products are. Yeah, that's sort of a eye rolling in the back of the head orgasm face moment. I remember trying it. I think, wasn't it at Fancy Food Show in January of this year? Yes. I think it was. Well, you had tried them once before because I got their products, I think, originally through- Right, 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 right. The New Hope, who does the Natural Products Expo, they send out a box and the Wellnut Butters was in one of them last year in 2019. And it was like one of the best products I had tried in a long time. So we did also try them at the Fancy Food Show. Thank goodness we did not miss that. Can you imagine if we hadn't gone to that event? Because <laughs> you were kind of on the fence about going. Yeah, I was. And and I got so sick after that event. I was sick for weeks after that event. And spoiler alert, there's no way I can confirm it. Maybe through an antibody test, but I'm not going to go fork over $180 to get an antibody test right now. I think I had COVID after that event. A lot of people think they had COVID. I really think I was so sick for like three and a half weeks after that event. Like so sick. Of course, when COVID became a thing that was more in the public consciousness, I remember looking at the list of symptoms and going, oh, damn, like back in January, early February. Yeah, after Fancy Food Show, I was knocked out like the last two weeks of January and like the first week of February. I was just crispy. It would be interesting to see, but you know, a lot of these tests aren't even accurate. So who knows? That's right. I think we should all just assume that we've never had it just to be safe. Uh, (laughs) Because I saw a TikTok video that actually made such a great point. And they were kind of making fun of, and this is certainly not to be judgmental or rude, but they're making fun of people's reactions. And one of the cliche reactions is, I think I had it back. Because I, I remember that going through my mind too, Jason. So myself included, but now I am assuming that I didn't have it. But they were also this great point that just because you have the antibodies doesn't mean that you know, you're fully immune to it, at least as far as I understand without being a scientist. Or, But a lot of people that think that just because they got tested, that means that they're okay in between getting tested. And you could get a test, leave the testing facility and get exposed to somebody with COVID and then have it right after your test. So unfortunately, the best thing for us to do is to try to minimize our interactions with people, even if we feel like we've already had it or we've been tested for it. It's just, in my opinion, better to be cautious and not make assumptions as we've talked about. All right. Well, lastly, let's do a really quick round of frequently asked queries before we wrap up this episode. So today, I I would just love to know off the top of your head, Jason, what comes to mind when you hear this query, which is creepy rabbit movie. For me, I think of that movie Watership Down. Interesting. Do you remember that movie? 
And that book, based on the book? I know of it, but have never seen the movie. If you watched it when you were a kid, it's one of those movies that scarred me for life, me and my sister, because there's a scene in which the rabbits are like in their hole under the ground. And they like, I think the humans that lived, the whole movie is about being a rabbit. So like you're in the POV of a rabbit and they either like poison the rabbits or like they did something because they thought the rabbits were pests. And there's just this horrifically violent, scary representation of what these rabbits went through, like basically to show you the trauma <laughs> that these rabbits went through. And it's this animated movie. Good God. And I will never get the imagery of that scene out of my mind. And so when I see the words creepy rabbit movie, that's what I think of. What about you? I think of Donnie Darko. Uh-huh. Yeah. Immediately. Because, you know, that is a pretty frickin' creepazoid rabbit. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, immediately Donnie Darko. Fantastic movie, by the way. Yep. Agreed. All right. For a funny one, somebody typed in pictures of the real life tooth fairy. And I'm curious, Jason, (laughs) what do you think the real life tooth fairy looks like? My mother. Really? Well, I get it because she literally was. That's my mother. Yeah. I think of my mother, Susan, the real life tooth fairy. The real life tooth fairy to me seems like she would be like, kind of a very proper middle-aged British woman with a nice bonnet on top of her head and a very fancy bejeweled wand. Maybe an older version of like Glinda the Good Witch. That's who I think of when I think of the the real-life Tooth Fairy. Someone who looks like Glinda the Good Witch, but maybe a little bit older. That's pretty much what I would think as well. But like, who's to assume that the Tooth Fairy is a woman either? It could be a man, right? Touche. Fairy is like like a type. It's not like... um. It's a gender neutral term inherently. Yeah, exactly. But it's funny, I think growing up, at least for our generations, like you would associate fairy with female. And then like fairy is also used to describe a homosexual man in some ways. But like really a fairy, it could be a male or female fairy or a, a non-binary. This is correct. I'd be curious to see, hear what other people think of when they think of the tooth fairy, which would be a great prompt for you to reach out to us on social media which is at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, just like how our website is spelled. You can send us a direct message on Facebook or Instagram. Speaking of Facebook, I don't know if I have alerts turned on to be alerted if people reach out to on our Facebook page, which we don't use very often. But we do see messages on Instagram. And you can email us as well at hello at wellevator.com. And you can comment on each episode through the show notes, which are again at wellevator.com. If you click click on the podcast section, you can go and chime in on anything that we spoke on. We love hearing from you. We want you to be part of the conversation. We're curious about your reaction to anything we've discussed in this episode or any of our episodes. We'd love your feedback and suggestions and things that you would like to hear us talk about. We just really savor all of that communication. So please never hesitate to do that. We thank you so much for listening today. We have many episodes ahead, so be sure to subscribe if you haven't yet because you'll be alerted when the new episodes come out, such as the one that we talked about regarding the Enneagrams. Jason mentioned Latrice, who's an upcoming guest on our show. There is so much on its way to you, and we cannot wait to hear what you think of it. So until then, we're wishing you all the very best with getting uncomfortable, setting your boundaries with tuning into your intuition and having better communication with people. And we will be back with another episode in just a few days. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. 
For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.